to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so we are walking through First Kings, Second Chronicles, and Romans this week and uh, the wonderful world of Elijah into Elijah, uh, Elisha. Uh, as well as Paul's continued um, arguments in the book of Romans. And so, um, yeah, we, we see Elijah, we pick up this week with Elijah, who has just performed this incredible miracle. Uh, he just drove out all these terrible prophets. At some point, he's probably thinking like, ah, revival, this is finally going to be the turn for Israel. And we find out that the king's wife just wants to kill him, and he has to be on the run. And so at some point, Elijah is legitimately tired, exhausted, does feel totally alone. Um, and it seems like he just basically wishes he was dead at this point. Yeah, it's... You know, I think we still continue to believe that, like, if we see a miracle from God, we won't ever question God or anything like that again. But we see Elijah really wrestling with what he wants to see versus kind of the ministry task God has given him. And so he does get to these desperate moments and want to give up. But for us, it can be a reminder that our faith continues to rest on God and God alone and not our own experience with the miraculous or anything like that. And we get uh, the number 40, these kind of 40 days, which is always this connected to this idea of testing or preparation. And he goes down to Horeb, which is uh, also Sinai, uh, certainly the connection between the two. Um, and Elijah gets sort of all mopey in the caves, like nobody worships you. I'm the only one who cares. Everybody hates me. I'm the only one who's faithful. And, and we get a scene where there's sort of this grandiose kind of rock shattering, mighty wind. Now, some level like this is Elijah's personality. Like he is fiery. He's all about sort of the, the, the miraculous, a little bit over the top. We will see this before the story and already in, in sort of the competition. We'll see this again in Elijah's story, but, but at some level it's like oh in the wind and god this is what you're like earthquake fire wind but the the refrain is god's not in those things and then there's this whisper it's like elijah needs to know like he already knows that god does miraculous mighty sort of at times maybe judgmental things but elijah here in the wilderness it brought back to the very place where israel kind of had to learn to sort of trust the 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 voice of the shepherd in the wilderness. Like that's the lesson here. Like Elijah, I'm still doing work and, and you're saying you're the only one left, but like there's still 7,000 that, that are faithful to me. You're not alone. I'm still doing this work. Like, so get up Elijah, go back, make a disciple, anoint this King. And like, let's, let's, let's go, let's go make it happen. Yeah. I think God was expanding Elijah's understanding of who he is. And so with that fire and that earthquake, we have stories of fire as judgment and earthquakes as judgment, uh, back in the time of Exodus with Moses and Israel. And God does do those things, but what Elijah needed to hear was that God is also in the remnant. He's also in the quiet. He's also uh, in the grace and the preservation. And so it's almost kind of this interlude where you see this judgment and this representation of judgment. God meets Elijah in the stillness and the quietness. And then God um, recommissions Elijah to go kind of be someone who again is speaking of the judgment of God. But Elijah knows it from a different understanding and understands his role as the remnant rather than just like the bringer of the force and the thunder. So it's this story, it's, there's so much depth to it outside of me being like, I don't know what college I need to go to. So I should wait and listen to God's still small voice. 
I'm not saying God won't speak to us in those ways sometimes, but the representation here of these different things and the way God spoke to Elijah speaks so much more to what God is telling to Israel as a whole and God's plan to redeem all people to himself. Yeah, and, and even the lesson to Elijah is is um, not, yeah, it's not about direction and just hearing from God. I mean, Elijah had hearing from God. It, it had to do with sort of the, the lesson of, Elijah, I'm, st- I'm still doing a work, and it's not all about you. And if anything, Elijah, you're actually the precursor to the work I'm doing, um, right. which, which we sort of see. And, and Sarah and I talked about this, but there, there's sort of this transition between Moses and Joshua. And Joshua is the one who's in the land, but Moses is the one who sort of gets, gets them there. And then um, and, and eventually with, with Elijah, we sort of see a pickup of John the Baptist, who is the one who prepares the way for the work that God's actually going to do through um, through through Jesus. And so um, there's a little bit of that in Elijah because what, what God commissions Elijah to do is that he's not going to be the one who's going to ultimately bring judgment. And Elijah, go make a disciple of Elisha and, and anoint this king. And they're the ones who are going to enact this judgment. He's sort of preparing the way for what God's going to do. So yeah, so Elijah kind of skips going to anoint these other kings, but he goes to Elisha and invites him to become his disciple. Yeah. And Elisha seems like a man with means. He's got at least 12 yokes, which is either 12 oxen or 24 oxen. Um, he's, he's got some money, but he, he eventually seems to understand the moment and, and to go. And he asks for permission to say goodbye. And Elijah's sort of like, go ahead, but don't forget what I've done. Like, we've got to go. Uh, you got to follow me. And so, um, and, and historically, rabbis have always understood the story as like the start of the rabbi discipleship um, scenarios in scripture. Like this was the first rabbi disciple relationship. Yeah. And I think you're going to see us talk about this, like Chris just referenced, but we have this story of, of Moses preparing the way and Joshua leading people into the promised land and Joshua's name means God saves. Okay. And then you have Elijah kind of preparing the way and then Elisha taking over for him and Elisha means God saves. And then in the new Testament, we have John the Baptist preparing the way, Um, And then even we'll get into more details later with like the Jordan River and stuff, but then Jesus taking over to lead people into salvation and Jesus means God saves. So as we continue to watch Elisha and Elijah hearken back to uh, Moses and Joshua and look forward to John the Baptist and Jesus, because this is telling a much bigger story than just what is going on in Israel at this time. Yep. And so it seems like the anointing hasn't happened and Ben-Hadad is still the king. And, and there's a whole lot of details in the narrative here. And I mean, there's definitely a way to step back and kind of read it contextually in sort of the larger story. But there's just a whole lot of read, uh, just details. And so um, I, I don't know if it's worthwhile to recap all the details of the siege and all this kind of stuff. But, um, but at the same time, it is important to sort of see like God's, God's still working. He's still working with the Northern kingdom. He's certainly still working with the Southern kingdom. Um, and uh, he still has his prophets that are kind of doing this work. And, um, and, and God hasn't completely given up on the Northern kingdom at this point. Right. And God is even using them to show Syria, to show these other nations that he is Yahweh. He is God overall. You know, when they can't defeat him in the Hills, uh, Syria is like, Oh, well, your God is the God of the Hills. We'll beat him in the plains. But then they lose in the plains too. Yahweh is the one who's going to glorify his name, not just among Israel, but among all people. So this is a picture again, that is looking from the very beginning to the very end Genesis to revelation. And we're seeing a glimpse of that here. Yep. And so, um, 
yeah, these prophets keep speaking and um, the prophets are teaching someone like Ahab some lessons around because um, Ahab decides to take to have a treaty with the king and ultimately that, that was probably not the best move. And so uh, the prophet needs to kind of remind them like, look, like Ahab, you're still screwing up. Uh, you should have you should have dealt with Ben-Hadad, not entered into this treaty with him. And, um, and then we get the sort of story about this vineyard. It's important to know, and it was kind of the, the thing I brought up last week of, of things to look forward to. It's, we, we certainly get God and the prophets kind of answering some of the, the Baal worship, the Asherah stuff, all, all that sort of um, kind of pagan idolatry. But at the same time, we also see God deal with these, these kings and these leaders around uh, things like um, justice issues. Like this is a story of injustice and greed where a king and queen of power basically try to um, at first disenfranchise Naboth, like t- selling of, of a land, like the land is your citizenship in Israel. Like if you don't have land, you actually struggle with, with whether or not you are a true citizen. And so the fact they even mm-hmm. tried to get the land in the first place was a problem. Uh, and then they just take it. And, and so um, it, it's, it's, it's awful. It's, it's a total abuse of kingly power in an injustice way um, against their own citizens. And so um, God ultimately like, this is the breaking point of all the terrible things Ahab did. This is the breaking point. And then Ahab goes down as one of the worst Kings in history. And so um, sometimes we shouldn't distance. And, and some of our early prophets will, will deal with this. Like sometimes we just think, Oh, they're just speaking about um, the idolatry of Israel. It's like, well, their idolatry also was injustice and abuse of power and stuff like that. And so uh, the story certainly highlights that. Yeah. I think as we look through these different stories of Ahab, um, he to me seems to be in one of the scariest places there is. He knows Yahweh. He has seen Yahweh's power and he's been on the receiving end of God's blessing and battles, but he still refuses to submit to the Lordship of God. He's seen him at his work, but he's seen God at work and he's experienced it, but does not want to call him Lord and still wants his own thing. And I think that's a, that's a risk for many people in modern day, even, uh, and still maybe a temptation for all of us. We know God, we believe in God, but is he our Lord and are we willing to submit to him? So Elijah tells Ahab, uh, he's going to die. Uh, Ahab seems to have, uh, this has prompted some response in Ahab, how legitimate it's always a good question. Um, and then, um, Ahab and Jehoshaphat, so the, uh, the king from the south, kind of decide to work together against Syria. Um, they have these 400 prophets uh, that Ahab um, seeks, and Jehoshaphat's sort of like, okay, is there not? It's not at least one more. four hundred. Let's have 401 opinions on this. And, uh, and keep in mind that Jehoshaphat is like pretty much like a God-fearing guy. He's a king of Judah, yeah. and he loves the Lord. We'll Seems talk about him more or you read more about him after this. Yeah. And so, uh, Ahab admits there's another prophet. It's just one that he doesn't like because everything he says is against him. Uh, they go out and get this prophet, uh, Micaiah. Uh, and so, um, and they even tell him, Hey, uh, 400 prophets have already said this one thing. Uh, you should probably say that too. And, but he, Micaiah comes, um, Micaiah, I guess probably would be right. Um, comes and at first he's like yeah like go go to battle it'll be great uh but ahab's like no 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 <laughs> you normally say something terrible like tell me the truth and um, micaiah's like all right you you're gonna go into battle and the the army's gonna be like a sheep with no shepherd like you the leader's gonna die um and ahab's sort of like see joseph i told you he's negative nelly over here and so um yeah, Micaiah tells Ahab this this vision of these prophets that are all lying to him, tempting him to actually go into this battle. Um, 
and one of the prophets gets mad and punches Micaiah in the face and then they decide to lock him up. But Micaiah is like, well, if, if Ahab comes back from battle, yeah, I'm a liar, uh, but we'll see. And there continues to be an emphasis on this idea of a remnant in here. That's a big theme we'll see throughout um, at least Elijah's role that he plays in what we read in scripture. And then, you know, we'll see that pick up again in Romans next week. And so pay attention to when you read the word remnant and what that represents. But Ahab ends up getting killed in battle. He tries to sort of fake it and hide a little bit, but he ends up dying in battle and bleeding all over his chariot and it gets washed and the dogs lick up the blood. And so exactly what happens. And so um, that's the end. That's the end of Ahab's story. (laughs) And then we kind of move back to the South. Yeah. And I think we see something really amazing about God's grace, even in Ahab's story, even in God delaying some of that judgment that was to come on Ahab, or the fact that uh, while Ahab was reigning, God still gave Israel three years of peace. Those are not things that they earned, but God continued to uphold his covenant to David, to Noah, and to Abraham, uh, and remain faithful to a faithless people. Yeah. Yeah. Jehoshaphat seems... uh mostly good he is yeah. still not perfect but um he's presented as generally pretty decent and then uh Ahaziah, to close out first kings is not so great right the end of first kings at least it is really fascinating <laughs> to just hold these like the southern kings and the northern kings up against one another and knowing that like the promised line is coming through the southern kings so even when they are wicked they're still in some way are put there by god and anointed by god because they're in david's line yeah and wrapping up i mean i know we're not wrapping up first kings totally because kings is one long book they're just divided into two um but it's interesting reading back through stories. I kind of like wish we talked through Matthew after reading some of the history mm-hmm. of the Kings, because there's just moments where it feels like Jesus is making reference back to some of these stories as he sort of condemns the leaders in, in Israel um, and just kind of pointing out the wicked Kings of, of, of the past. And so, um, yeah, I, I think there's, there's some more richness that I'm missing out on that. I kind of want to go back, but yeah, yeah, I think one of the overarching lessons for me, that I continue to have illustrated to me through doing this to your Bible is how easy it is to stumble from faith and obedience as we grow and as time passes from seeing Solomon slowly decline into failure and disobedience. And the impact that that had on generations is really sobering. And we see the same with Asa and this along with Christian leaders walking away from their faith, they're falling into sin as a reminder that I need to constantly seek God's wisdom and apply it to my life. He is so worth knowing and he is the gift. And I don't want to lose sight of that. Even as I continue to grow in age and spend time following him, I still could fall away if I'm not um, begging him for mercy to not. Yeah. Uh, And then the short one, Chapter from Second Chronicles 17, we, we are introduced to Joseph, Jehoshaphat there. Um, he does pretty well, taking down the Asherah Shrine, sends, sends out people to actually teach the law, which is awesome. That's great. We haven't heard a whole lot of that. Yeah. Um, but he also gained some money supplies as an army station in Jerusalem. But gosh, that, that seems so little compared to Asherah and Baal worship and stuff like that. Yeah. And so, yeah. I just, yeah, I mean, I want to reiterate what you just said. How cool is it that he sends people throughout Judah to teach the book of the law and the Lord's law so all Israel could hear it and know it and follow it and obey it? It makes me think of when Moses was talking to them and they're like, everything you've said, we will do. Well, these people may now now may not even know what Moses had said and they're hearing it again. Right. And and, and we're going to watch the Assyrians eventually come to town and and the, the north ultimately falls and the South doesn't. And uh, I think some of the, the work and some of the seeds that are being laid here, yeah. at least 
fend that off for a little bit. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, we'll read on later. It kind of disappears altogether. And then Josiah is like, hey, look, we found this book. And it turns out it's the law. So <laughs> we'll see this pattern repeat itself. Right. And so the New Testament, uh, getting into Romans 6, which it's always hard to, to break up a book like this because they're arguments built upon arguments mm-hmm. and, and going back uh, is, is a little tricky. But um, Paul has just set up this true understanding of of sort of the, the radical, almost scandalous understanding of grace. And and he's almost uh, expecting that that the ex, the, the the sort of counter argument or the the questions that would be asked is sort of okay if like if God's grace is so amazing and it's so scandalous and it's it, it only abounds more when we sin then like what why, why be obey at all like why don't we just have a free for all this sort of like total license now so just go do whatever you want because God's grace is going to cover it um, and Paul desires to show sort of the fallacies and the thinking that. Um, that this amazing grace cannot be like a, a free license to just go sin. And so, um, and, and he starts going into this analogy of death and he connects it to our baptism that uh, awakening to grace is like this, this death of, of a way of living like this, this previous self that, that led to sin. And he uses this picture of baptism and, and it's important like baptism itself historically had, had a connection to repentance. Like that was what John's baptism was about, this idea of repentance, um, and forsaking a previous way of living. And so, um, I think in that picture, that this, this physical picture, like mm. just as Jesus died, he went down into the ground, he came back up. Like there's something about us when we are baptized, when we come to Jesus in faith that like goes down into the ground. Like there's, there's part of who we were that, goes through this watery grave and what comes up is this new person. So there's this mm-hmm. old self that was marked by sin. That was marked by desire to do whatever we wanted to and to live for in total license that, that is dead and it symbolizes baptism. We have this new creation that has come up out of that. So what's, what's primarily true of us. And this is sort of, I think a, a, an argument he makes through this whole week that we read. So what becomes primarily true of us is not that we just give into every lustful passion. What's primarily true of us is that we are now united with Christ. Like Christ and us are, have this cosmic connection now. And, and so that is what's true of you. So this idea that you would just go do whatever you want, that's not, that's not primary to you anymore. So there's a paradigm shift here that, it's helpful for us to really understand in our mind. Once we get something, we often feel much more empowered to do it. So like those people who say, I am a runner, often run more than those who say, I run sometimes. And I think the same is true for us in this. When, when we say and we believe that we are no longer enslaved to sin, we are more likely to live practically every day under that authority of Christ rather than um, someone who who calls themselves a sinner if that makes sense. So there's a component where we have to understand our sinfulness and we'll get there. But also if you were in Christ, you were no longer seen as a sinner, but you were seen as righteous because of Christ. And then Paul, like he's just so masterful in predicting the questions that everyone's going to have. And so he seems to be swinging this pendulum from side to side as high as it can go. So he sets us up to be like, all right, we're no longer sinners. We're alive to God. We're dead to sin. But he moves into chapter or the second half of chapter six. Yeah, and 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 because of this radical grace, what what are we going to do? And uh, he kind of points out, like, look, you're going to be enslaved to something. Like, it's just 
in some ways how we are. And although it may feel free, like pursuing sin is enslavement. Like there's not a middle ground and we've been set free, but we've been set free to be slaves to righteousness. Like this is us now. The death that was just referenced is, is, is now it's the present reality. Like eternal life is now. And life there's, there's a life that comes from a slave to righteousness that we can experience now. And it's interesting because Paul almost includes like a little bit of an asterisk being like, okay, like as I talk about the slavery, like I know this is limited terminology, but Paul circle back circles back on this initial conversation about wages and stuff. They started in chapter four, I think he's like, look, like, the life of sin has its own taskmaster who who pays out at the end of the, the day. And and sin is self-righteousness, trying to earn your own thing or trying to define things on your own, whatever it may be. Like, that's death. Like, the wages paid out of a hard work day of sin and your own measuring stick and lustful desires, whatever it may be, is death. But we don't work for that taskmaster anymore. Like, we, we, we don't work at all. Like, God's wage for us is is a gift. It's actually not a paycheck. Like there's actually not the wage. It's truly a gift and it's a gift of eternal life. So you can work all day for the wage that comes from sin, which is death, or you can accept the gift, which is free. And that is life through faith. So we have to understand that we were created for worship, right? And this, so much of this comes against our like fiercely, you know, at least within our Western American culture, this fierce independence. I can do what I want, but we were created to worship something. We were created to be enslaved to something and we are enslaved to sin until we are purchased by Christ's blood. And now we get to be slaves to righteousness. Our worship is going to God and we will be able to fully or almost not fully, I guess, but, um, look forward to or live towards what we were truly created to do as worshipers of God. And there is freedom and liberty in that, but it helps us to understand the, the reasoning argument behind it. I think to actually live it out. Yeah, and, and Paul moves into sort of another earthly analogy to continue making his point. It's like, look, if you're like a mar- a man, a woman who is married and bound legally to her husband, but they die, it's like, guess what? You are no longer legally bound to, to the dead husband. And if the taskmaster sin or the old husband, guess what? He's dead. Like, you're no longer bound to him. So we are free now to be married to a new husband. So how ridiculous, how ludicrous that we would be married to the dead husband and married to the new husband at the same time. Like that is not the picture here. So let's leave behind the old husband, the the way of thinking that that we have to work or earn our justification. Like that needs to go away. Like that is not the gospel. Um, and, And not that we would throw away the law altogether. And he constantly gives us that reminder too, but that we would stop looking at just trying to be the, the most obedient we can as if that's what gets us there. It's a, that's what sets us right with God. Like that is an old husband that we have to break away from. Yeah. We're not bound by that. And it's interesting because at the end of the section, Paul almost seems to communicate some ambivalence to the law. You know, he's saying it's from God and it's holy, but it's unable to save sinners. And yet he's going to swing this pendulum back to the other side yeah. through the rest of chapter seven and emphasize its purity and how amazing the law really is. Yeah. He, he goes on to defend it. And it, it basically it's like, it's not the law's fault. It's, it's us. Like when the command was given, like the command is the problem. The problem is sin in us that like desires us to 
trespass the law or desires us to justify ourselves by the law, whatever it may be. Like that's on us. That's not on the law. And so did the law bring death? No, it was sin that brought death and sin has this nature about it. Almost that. And, and Paul starts talking about almost like this outside nature to it. And like, uh, he even says like, it's not me, but sin in me, that's the problem. And, um, and, and so he, he starts moving into that idea of identity as well too. Like, uh, uh, my identification of a sinner is no longer who I am, but it still affects me and it still struggles. Like I, I desire these things. Like he even points out a, a, a right and, and maybe realigned desire. Like I desire these things, but I still trespass. Like I still break the laws that, that, that I, I, I want to live for. And so it, it, it sin still has this work in me, this lustful desire. And, and so when he talks about a wretched man, the word wretched also means sort of distressed or conflicted. And he's like, I'm this conflicted man. Like I, I know I'm set free. I, I know that's not my primary identity, but it's, it's still there in me. And that's not the fault of the law. The law just keeps revealing that in me. Yeah. You know, we've all been at those places with the signs that say, don't walk on the grass. And when you see it, the majority of us want to walk on the grass because we saw the sign. And what Paul is saying here is that it's not the sign's fault that you want to break the rule. It's what's within you. You are fallen and the law is revealing that. And I think that like this passage leads me to love the law, love God's word even more. I mean, I think of Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm, and it's devoted to celebrating God's law. Um, In it, we see God's perfection, and we also see our own death apart from God. I think it shows me the more I know the law and the more I see my failures, the more I see my need for salvation. The law, it's spiritual, it's perfect, and it's from God. But like Paul says, I am unspiritual, I am sinful, I am enslaved to sin, and I'm dying. But now that we are in Christ, we are not defined by our sins, but by Christ's righteousness. Sin is other from us, and while it dwells within us, it is not us. And so we can thank God for His law and thank Um, God, even for Christ being the fulfillment of that law so that we can be saved and walk in this new identity. Yeah. And sort of sit there going like, I'm conflicted. I'm still struggling. I'm not measuring up. I'm falling short. I'm sinning. Guess what? Paul's like, and I I have the answer for you that in Christ, there is no condemnation Um, that, that, that all that struggling, like we have to get it through our heads that, that there's no condemnation left. Everything else will condemn you. The law will condemn you. The Your own conscience will condemn you. But in Christ, there's no condemnation. Um, mm. and, and God has done in Jesus like what we couldn't do to the law, like because of our flesh, because of our desires, like we couldn't do it. Um, but Jesus coming into this world with the temptations, desires that we all had, but he didn't sin in them. And in doing so, satisfied like the righteous, the requirement of the law for us. And so, and by his spirit now, he puts it in us so that we can actually walk it out so that we, we become these new creations that we are no longer bound by our, our flesh, our sinful desires. Like that was death. But now we have peace that comes through the spirit and, and we can set our mind on the things of the spirit. And, and so that, that in that find life, find what is true. It's not longer death, but life. Yeah, so we've spent the first seven chapters of Roman considering how desperately wicked and fallen we are. We've looked at it from every single angle, every single option, and no matter what, basically, we are all sinful, and we are all uh, worthy of coming under the wrath and judgment of God. And then we hit chapter 8, and the first word we see is Paul saying, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. 
we get to walk under not being condemned, but under the adoption and the freedom that comes from being saved by Christ. And so slowing down to read all of this, and even like Chris and I promised at the beginning of Romans that this is going to be a, a practical, accessible book for all of us to read. I mean, it culminates here, at least the first time in the book of Romans, and that we realize how sinful and lost we are and how incredibly saved we are through Christ. And that is amazing news that is going to lead us us to transformation as we grow more like Christ in our pursuit of Him. Yeah, and and we're indebted to Christ. I mean, sort of the the presentation there uh, is is we are indebted, and, and having a debt uh, sometimes we think very financial in our culture, but um, historically it was um, something that would bound you to the person you're indebted to, and uh, we'd be or we are in some ways indebted to Jesus for doing the work that we didn't do. Um, it created a bond with us, but but. What's great is, and this is the same thing to deal with the kind of conversation around wage versus gift, like that, that indebtedness didn't produce a harsh slavery. It, it actually caused God or for God's free will to actually adopt us into sonship. So instead of staying there as debtors enslaved to have to earn back what, what, what we couldn't pay for, God goes, no, 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 I'm going to put my spirit in you and make you a son or a daughter. And, and, and that debtor relationship paved its way for our adoption. And so it's so great. Paul's Paul set up there. Yeah. And I, I think one other thing to point out here is, you know, we don't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, but Paul mentions it 19 times in the first 27 verses of this chapter. So understanding the work and the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation should give us even greater awe and gratefulness at what God has done and that we are indwelt by this Holy Spirit of God as a way to live out our salvation and sanctification. Yeah. It, it's, it's often, at least in Paul's argument, really con- contrasted with uh, the word flesh, which uh, carries with it the idea of desires, the idea of like um, um, just just lustful wanting to, wanting things for self, and so um, the spirit is is presented as a, kind of a counterforce to that. So good, Proverbs twenty eight. So, I mean, I think Proverbs 28, we see a lot of connections to both our Old Testament and our New Testament reading. We see the play out of wicked rulers, and we saw that in, you know, Ahab or Ben-Hadad. And then uh, we also see the law and its goodness in Proverbs 28 as well, which probably makes us think of Romans. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, I mean, there's always a, a few good verses to just pull out of Proverbs, like those who conceal their sins don't prosper, but those who confess and renounce them find mercy. And that, like that's so, I mean, even dealing with Paul, it's like, look, like it's not about tr- trying to, to, to be your best and stuff like that. Like it, w- where we find, um, graciousness is, is when we come forward and like own your sin and, and, and be ones to, to admit um, that we needed Jesus to fulfill the law um, or those who trust themselves are fool, but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. And so um, even, even dealing with the the sort of practices of trying to follow the law, like if you think that your own works are, 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 are the thing that, that ultimately does this, like you're a fool. So next week, yeah, so as you read the Old Testament, like I mentioned before, look for the parallels between Elijah and John the Baptist and Moses or Elisha and Christ and Joshua. You'll find it, but it's going to it's gonna take some work. But keep your eyes open to seeing that bigger picture thread uh, of God's plan to redeem people through all of Scripture. Um, and the New Testament, just like I said, pay attention to the role of the Holy Spirit that Paul talks about in Romans 8, even as we move forward. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of parallels uh, between Moses and Elijah. Um, and, and yeah, see if you can pick those up. And then New Testament, um, as we continue into sort of the continued complexity of some of what Paul's dealing with, uh, as we encounter Romans 9, um, 
which is um, a hotly debated chapter. Um, I think Paul Paul has presented this radical graciousness and invitation of God to, to to come to Him, not by works, not by earning, not by your own measuring stick, but but through radical, scandalous grace. And so, um, if that's sort of the argument about God's incredible mercy, how should that shape how we read that chapter in in the context up till now? And so, um, yeah. That's it for me. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.